Because I grew up in uh, South Georgia, my entire life experience from birth through 18, birth through graduating high school, was steeped in the rural South. That's true for a couple of others of you as well. When I say rural South, um, I spent part of a summer pulling weeds out of a peanut field. That, that's the rural South. I worked for a friend's grandfather who had a farm. And so we were in the peanut fields uh, some. And then I, I spent another part of that same summer on that same farm helping him castrate pigs. So when I say rural South, that's what I mean. That rural South is where I grew up. Um, now, because of that, um, I, I grew up in what appeared to me as a very diverse community. I, I lived 16 years, as a lot of you know, 16 of those first 18 were in Tifton, Georgia, and then there was two years kind of in the middle when I was eight, nine years old that uh, my dad became a pastor. And he was the pastor of a little bitty church in a, a, a city in southwest Georgia called Camilla, if any of you have ever heard of Camilla. Uh, it was smaller than Tifton, is smaller than Tifton. We actually didn't even live in Camilla. We lived seven miles outside of Camilla in an unincorporated community called Pebble City. Actually, real name, still called Pebble City, like the Flintstones. That's where we lived. Now, in Pebble City, there was a Methodist church and then there was the little country Baptist church, and my dad was the pastor. And in between the two was our house where we lived. It was, it was the pastorium. If, that, if you don't know what that word means, it's not that important. But years ago, churches used to own a home, and their pastor would live in it. Generally, it was not far from the church for a lot of reasons. Churches don't do that anymore, and that's a good thing. But back then... This little church had uh, a pastorium, and that, that's where we lived when I was eight, nine years old. There was one other thing in Pebble City. Directly behind the church was the cemetery, which means directly outside my bedroom window for two years was the graveyard. If you've ever wondered what's wrong with me, this is, this is, a, part, this is a part of it. So that, that was my experience uh, growing up. And, and in both of those rural South Georgia communities, as best I knew as a kid, it was a very diverse environment. I don't know where you grew up, but in rural South Georgia, there weren't like 10 different schools that people went to. You basically had one or two schools and everybody went to that school. And so... From my earliest recollections, even in the early to mid-70s, um, my classrooms were very diverse. Uh, people of a lot of different shades of white and brown were in my classrooms. I never thought anything about it. You know, when you're a kid, you don't ever think that things could be different. You know, when you're six, seven, eight, nine years old, you don't look at the world and go, oh, well, that should be different or this could be different. You're a kid. You're just living in the world and you just assume, well, this is the way it is. I never thought a lot about it, but my growing up was very much in this sort of diverse context. Um, as a kid, again, the best I can tell, my heart, my mind, my thinking, thinking, I didn't see people as different from me. Really, I mean, we went to school together, we played ball together, we went on field trips together. We just were people. As best I could tell, 
my heart, I, I didn't really see that there were differences. There were a couple of incidents in my life, though, that suggested, that like cracked the door of my thinking ever so slightly, that maybe everybody I went to school with didn't have the exact same experiences that I had. M maybe how they interacted in the world wasn't exactly the same as the way I interacted. One of those years when we lived in Camilla in Pebble City, southwest Georgia, it was coming up on time for my birthday. And my parents came to me and said, we'd like you to make a list, uh, you know, six or eight guys that you want to invite to come to your birthday party. And so I thought about it and made out my list. And on my list was a, a, a kid in my third grade class by the name of Stacy. We were great friends. And uh, most importantly, Stacy was the best kickball player in third grade. Like if you were picking teams for kickball, you wanted Stacy. We were convinced Stacy would go pro in kickball. He was just that good. He was incredibly talented at kickball. So you wanted Stacy on your team. Stacy was also black. I gave the list to my parents and... Uh, a few days later, they came back, and um, most of you don't know my parents. Uh, my parents are, are wonderful, salt-of-the-earth, good, loving people without any sense of prejudice in them, and you may question that when I get to the end of the story. I, I kind of wish this story turned out differently. They probably do, too, at this point. But they came back, and they said, we think it would be best if we didn't invite Stacy." And I was, I was eight, I was heartbroken, I, I didn't understand, I was angry. And it would take me years before I realized my parents weren't concerned about Stacy coming to our house. My parents were concerned that the people in my dad's new country church wouldn't like the fact that Stacy came to the pastor's house. I mean, think about that. They weren't afraid of the atheist and what the atheist thought. They weren't afraid of the agnostics. They weren't afraid of the secular humanists or what the media was going to think. They weren't. They were concerned about what people who went to church every single Sunday would think about a black boy coming to the pastor's house. And that was maybe the first time that I thought, maybe everybody's experience isn't like mine. I don't know about you, there, there's never been a single day in my life when I haven't been invited to something because of the color of my skin. There's never, never been a day that that's happened to me. Stacy, wherever he is, coaching kickball somewhere, I don't know. Stacy can't say that. That was the mid-70s. We were just coming out of the civil rights movement, right? I was born three months after Dr. King was assassinated, 1968. This is 1975. I mean, we're right on the edge of a lot of turmoil and, and, and a lot of tension. In the mid-80s, we had moved back to Tifton. I was in high school. I was a 10th grader. I was 16. And I had a friend named Steve, 
Uh, Steve was a year older than I was. He was in 11th grade. I was in 10th grade. Steve was great. Funniest guy you've ever met. Great personality. Everybody loved Steve. Steve was better at everything than I was. He was better at football. He was better at baseball. He was quarterback of our high school team his junior and senior year. Just incredible. I love being around Steve. We finished baseball practice one day, and, and I'm walking in my car, and Steve says, Ken, can you give me a ride home? I said, yeah, get in. When I'm 16, I drive a green Ford Pinto. You know what I'm talking about. It wasn't just any green Ford Pinto. It had a hand-crank sunroof. You do this, pull a muscle before you get it all the way open. Pintos weren't so much cars as they were death traps, but Steve gets in the passenger seat of the green Ford Pinto, and we start down the road talking about what 16-year-old boys talk about and cracking jokes and laughing. And Steve's telling me where he lives, never been to Steve's house, didn't know where he lived, and so he's telling me, turn here and turn there. And there was a moment... There was a moment when we crossed into a part of my little bitty South Georgia town that I had never, ever been in before. I didn't even know it existed. I had never seen this part of town, and my first thought is, well, this must be a shortcut to Steve's house. And about that time, Steve says, there's my house just parked right there, pull over on the side of the road. And I look, and Steve's house is a single-wide trailer that looks like A summer breeze could knock it down. Surrounded by other houses and trailers that looked like a small breeze would knock them down. So I pull off the side of the road. And Steve's still making jokes and he opens the door and he gets out. And as Steve gets out, my car dies. My pinto cuts off. And I'm trying to get it to crank. And Steve's laughing the whole time. And finally, at one point, I can't get it to crank. And so Steve looks down the street and says, uh-oh, white boy broke down in the hood. And he laughs. And I try to crank the car as fast as I can. And it finally cranks, and Steve's still laughing and waves goodbye and goes in his house. And I drive home, and there's like this little bigger crack in the door of my mind. It thinks maybe everybody's experience isn't mine. My, my family wasn't wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. There weren't a lot of wealthy people in rural South Georgia back then. Not, not like today. I mean, there were doctors, and if you were a farmer and you had a whole bunch of land, then you were wealthy. But most people in South Georgia, middle to low income, I had never seen where Steve lived before in 16 years. And Steve and I laughed at the same things, and we played on the same teams, and we wore the same clothes. And I think Steve's experience growing up was different from mine in some fairly significant ways. In the mid-90s, I was serving a church in northeast Florida. This was the time when Promise Keepers was really taking off. It was a men's movement, if you're not familiar with it. It still is. It's still going. 
It's a men's movement that encourages men to live lives of integrity and be faithful to their wives and love their kids and, and do the right thing and honor God and serve God with their whole heart. I'd never been to a Promise Keepers event until the mid-90s. There was one in Jacksonville uh, where the Jaguars play. The Jaguars just had come into the NFL about two, three years before that. Uh, Gator Bowl, for some of you, is where the Florida-Georgia games played. And so they host this huge Promise Keepers event in that stadium. Tens of thousands of men. That's my first time. I go, Promise Keepers was started by Coach Bill McCartney. He coached the Colorado Buffaloes. And... Um, Coach McCartney would always speak at some point during the conference. They'd have other pastors, and there would be worship, and uh, just, just this huge conference. But Coach McCartney would always have a specific message at each Promise Keepers event. When Coach McCartney came up to speak at that event, he took off his shoes. And then he walked up to the, to the podium and he said, I'm going to take off my shoes because I think what we're about to talk about is going to put us on holy ground. And then he began to describe his experiences in getting to know the black coaches that were on his staff, talking to them, meeting their families. He described going to funerals for members of their family. And he said... I began to feel this weight when I was around them. I began to feel a grief that I had never felt before. I began to feel an oppression. And then for the rest of his message, he challenged us. For the way that we look at people who are different from us. He challenged us to root out prejudice in our own heart that we may be unaware of. He challenged us that people's lives may not be the same as ours. Our experience may not be what other people are experiencing. And I would like to say that was the moment combined with my earlier experience. That was the moment that I realized that there are people right here in our country and our, our community who still face injustice, who still face oppression. I would like to say that was the moment that I began to intentionally build friendships and relationships across racial and ethnic and cultural boundaries. I would like to say I left that conference with this renewed commitment to equality, and color blindness, but I didn't. I left agitated. I kind of left mad. Because my reaction to his message was, you don't know me. You don't know where I grew up. You don't know how my friends are. I have a lot of friends who don't look like me. I grew up with people who didn't look like me. I don't use the N-word. I don't make racial jokes. You don't know me, Bill McCartney. And all of that was a long time ago. 70s was a long time ago. The 80s... Distant history. Many of you weren't even born. 
the 90s, more than 20 years ago, I sat in that stadium. And yet, if you watch the news, if you, if you, if you pull up your Twitter feed, we're still having conversations about white supremacy and white nationalism and neo-Nazis and anti-Semitism. It wasn't that long ago. We live in a time where the voices of Philando Castile and Oscar Grant and Alton Sterling and Samuel Dubose cry out from the grave that things aren't that different. That there are still people who are judged by the color of their skin and not the character of their heart. That there are still people where we live in this country, in our community, who experience the weight of racial discrimination. If you read the Old Testament, specifically the prophets, and I encourage you to read the prophets, you find that God got angry with His people primarily about two things. And it comes up over and over again in the prophets. Every time these two things become a problem, God sends a prophet to warn them, and then He sends judgment. And the two things that anger God the most, number one, are when His people worship someone or something other than Him or ahead of Him. When his people prioritize someone or something ahead of God, then God is not happy about that. And God's going to send warning after warning, and then ultimately God's going to send judgment. But the second thing that God gets angry about all throughout the prophets is when his people fail to care for the vulnerable the marginalized, the minority, the immigrant, the foreigner. When his people turn a blind eye to justice, God gets very angry. As a matter of fact, throughout the Old Testament, God commanded that his people systematically care for those who are less fortunate those who are on the outskirts of society, those who are in the minority, those who are the foreigner, the immigrant. Not just when you feel like it, systematically make sure that people are cared for. He commanded his people when they planted their crops and it was harvest time, not to harvest to the edge of the fields. Instead, leave the edges, the corners for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the immigrant, for the stranger, for the foreigner. Systematically, make sure everyone is cared for. This was God's command. God commanded that His people have a system for forgiving debts so that no one 
systematically, cyclically lived their whole life perpetually in debt and servitude. God says, you've got to set people free. You've got to give people opportunity to move out of that. It's a command of God to His people. And when His people forgot those things, He got really angry. When they forgot God, And when they forgot how to treat people. And I would suggest the two are related. It's when we forget God that we forget how to treat other people. It's when we forget the place of God in our lives that we forget how to look at. How to be compassionate for. How to consider everybody. Those who look like me and those who don't look like me. And here's part of the problem. In the Old Testament, it's part of the problem today. It's part of the problem throughout history. In every system, in every political or economic system, wealth and power get consolidated, at least at the extremes, they get consolidated in the few. Every system, there's no need to argue that there's some system that this doesn't happen in. It happens in every political system, happens in every economic system. We can argue about which ones minimize it the best. It happens in every one of them throughout all of history. Wealth and power gets accumulated and consolidated among the few. Once it is consolidated, then the people with wealth and power use their wealth and power to keep their wealth and power. And to keep it from the people at the other end of the society. Therefore, if you have wealth and power, you have influence. So you can influence laws that are passed so that they are skewed in your favor. And not in favor of those who probably need it the most. You can influence leaders and kings and presidents and congress. We call them lobbyists, right? You can use them to protect your power and your wealth. You can use them and influence them to make it difficult or impossible for people at the other end of the spectrum to even have a voice. You can silence those without wealth and power. You can make it almost impossible for them to change anything Because you have wealth and power and influence over those who make laws. Now, this is the situation 2,700 years ago in Micah. The prophet Micah comes on the scene around 750 years before Jesus. And that's the problem. The nation of Israel is in a period of their time when the economy is booming. It's the best economy that they've experienced since the days of King Solomon. Everything is going great. People are building bigger homes and they're taking nicer vacations. And God steps in and says, here's the problem. With all your wealth and all your power, you've forgotten me. And you've forgotten what I've said about how you're to treat the poor and the immigrant and the widow and the orphan and the minority. And God begins to bring judgment. You can read it for yourself in Micah chapter 6. When, when God confronts His people about their failure 
to care for those that have been discriminated against, those on the margins, they decide that we'll just buy God off. That's their approach. Often when you have wealth and power, the way you solve everything is with wealth and power. And that's their response in Micah chapter 6. God confronts them, and their response is, God, how much will it take to make this just go away? You can read it. They start with a small amount, they kind of lowball God at the beginning, and then they keep building, okay, will it take this? Well, what if we give you this, God? How about if we give you all of this? What will it take to get you off our back? How much do we need to pay you so that you won't bother us anymore? And God says, I don't want your money. I own everything. Like, I don't need your money. I don't need your power. Your influence doesn't mean anything to me. I have all power. I want your hearts to change. I don't want you to just buy me all. I want your heart to become compassionate towards the people that are struggling around you. I want you to see them the way I see them, God says. Now, when we are confronted with hard issues, very often... We just want to make it go away. And most of the time, most of us can't afford to, to pay enough to make it go away. So we get defensive to try to make it go away. We begin to say things like, well, that wasn't my fault. Like, I wasn't living back then when all of that happened. Well, I've never made a racial joke to anyone. That's not me. You don't know me. I have lots of friends who are black. I have lots of friends from other countries. I work with people who don't look like me, and we get along fine. I listen to rap music. Like Who, who do you think I am? I, I, like we have all of these ways of trying to say, don't bother me with that. Just, I don't want to talk, I don't want to think about that. But God's very clear with His people. You got to think about this. God even says, <clears throat> at one point, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 10, Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures? You wicked house and the short ephah, which is accursed, shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales with a bag of false weights? And none of that translates into our world very well. We, we don't relate to false weights and short ephahs and dishonest scales. What God was saying is, I see what you're doing. I see that because you have wealth and power, you have skewed all the rules in your favor. I see that you've rigged the system. That's what he's telling his people. I know that you've rigged the system. So that when a poor person comes to buy something from you, you charge them more. At a higher interest rate. Which perpetuates the system that they're in and just gives you more wealth and power. I know that you've rigged the system so that you don't let certain people move into certain neighborhoods. I, say, I know that you've rigged the system, God says. 
When a poor person works for you, you don't pay them the value of their work. You pay them beneath that. You don't buy their product for what it's actually worth. You pay beneath that. And it perpetuates this system of injustice and oppression. That's what God says to His people. I see it. I'm not dumb. I know that you rigged the system. When we were in history class, we learned about how in 1620 the Mayflower comes over in the Pilgrims, and uh, we celebrate Thanksgiving, and we eat turkey, and we celebrate this beginnings of our nations, our nation. What I I, I never learned, I, I was never told, that the previous year, In 1619, the end of August, so 400 years from right now, 400 years ago from today, another ship arrived in the colonies. This one arrived in Point Comfort, Virginia. On that ship were 20-something African people, human beings made in the image of God, who were brought to the colonies to be sold as cattle. It was actually around a hundred Africans who boarded that ship. Only a little more than 20 actually lived through the voyage to get here. 1619, 400 years ago, began 246 years of African slave trade by the colonies that would become the United States of America. And fortunately, fortunately, in Great Britain and in America, there were people who finally stood up and said, this can't continue. William Wilberforce in Britain, people like Abraham Lincoln in our country, who said, this this has to end, this has to stop. But even post-slave trade, we entered into a time where where even still, people of color were considered three-fifths human. That was the position of many in our country. Lynchings took place. We developed this wonderful phrase, separate but equal, which is probably the greatest misnomer that America has ever come up with. Separate but equal. It never was the case. But we pacified our consciences with that phrase. For over a hundred years, this continued. And really, it was only a little over 50 years ago that Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement finally said, we're not equal yet. Dr. King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Monument and said, I have a dream. And yet, the consequences, the effects of over 300 years of this in our country is still being experienced. I'm not an expert on this. I'm not an expert. I just think that if we take an honest look at our society, we will see places where there are dishonest scales still. 
Well, there are false weights. When you look at the population of those who are incarcerated, break it down along racial barriers. I'm not an expert. It just looks like dishonest scales to me. The United States Sentencing Commission several years ago did a study and their conclusion, the United States Sentencing Commission, their conclusion just a few years ago was a black male will receive a 20% longer sentence than a white male with, would given the same circumstances. Same background, same arrest history, everything's equal. A black male will get 20% more time on average than a white male. Again, I'm not an expert. It just looks like false scales to me. It looks like we still have in our country dishonest weights. I borrowed some information from Connection Homes website and Pam Parrish. 27,000 foster care 18-year-olds will age out of foster care every year without a single stable relationship in their life. One in five will become homeless. 71% of the women will become pregnant before they're 21. And it would be my guess that many of those children will go right back into a foster care system. It, it seems systemic. It seems like we have cyclical problems within our country and within our culture. And listen, I realize you and I don't have complete control over the system. And there's a lot that goes on in the system that you and I are probably not going to sort out. And, and let me be real clear. I, I don't think Micah 6.8 is written to the United States anyway. Right? The United States is not the equivalent of Old Testament Israel, but we are. Micah 6 eight is for us. Micah 6 is for us. That God's people would be the voice of justice and compassion in a world that whether we want to admit it or not, systemically oppresses people. I got one. That's good. <laughs> In Micah 6, God finally sums up what He means. He doesn't leave it to us to figure out, okay, where's He going with this? God finally pinpoints what He wants us to remember, and it's in verse 8. God says, I've shown you, I've shown you, my people. In other words, you should already know this. Like This is review. These aren't, this isn't new information. I've already told you this. I've shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And here it is, to act justly. To do what is right. To be on the side of right. To be on the side of justice. He has shown you, us, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. In a world full of broken systems, 
in a world full of systemic oppression. He's shown us what we're to do and we're to act justly and we're to love mercy and we're to walk humbly with our God. That has to get in our bones. That has to bother us. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 4, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Nobody's on their side. Power was on the side of the oppressors. There it is. Wealth and power is over here. And they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Solomon is so disgusted by the injustices that he's seen. He says, look, it'd be better if you were never born. You'd have to see this going on. And God's people should have a gut reaction to injustice. It should bother us. It should bother us deep down as it did Solomon. He didn't look at it and say, well, that's just unfortunate or that's just the way the world is. It bothered him. The reason he was bothered, the reason you and I can act in justice, I think is the second part of what God said in Micah, and that is we have to love mercy. We have to love, be deeply committed to goodness and kindness and grace being experienced by all people. We have to love people. Because here's what I know. If somebody you love is taken advantage of, you won't be silent. You won't just excuse it. If your child is the victim of injustice, you won't be silent if you're a loving parent. And God says to His people, that's the way you should feel about everybody. Like you should love every person. So much so that you can't be silent if there is this sort of oppression and injustice going on. You have to speak up. Not the United States. I, my hope for the future is not in the president or Congress or politicians. They have no motivation to fix anything. My hope is in God's people who would renew our commitment to justice and love and humility. The last one, humility. It takes humility to be committed to the justice for somebody else. Let's be clear. When God says act justly, he's not saying me act on behalf of my justice. That's sometimes how we live it out. Well, I'm going to speak up if you treat me wrong. That's not what he's telling his people in Micah 6. He's saying you need to speak up because somebody else is being mistreated. We need to speak up when we see someone else as the victim of injustice and oppression. We need to be the voice of those who don't have a voice. And that takes humility. I got, I got to put me aside sometimes. It, it, it takes humility to have this conversation. This is not an easy conversation. 
It, it takes humility to lower my defenses. It takes humility to listen to someone's experience that's different than mine without wanting to step in and say, oh, I don't think that's really how they meant it. Oh, I think you're exaggerating. Oh, well, well, I grew up poor too. Oh, I had some challenges in my life too. It takes humility to let somebody else's experience be their experience and me enter in and empathize with them rather than tell them they're wrong about what they think. That takes humility. Because not everybody's experience is my experience. And instead of straightening somebody out, that, oh, that was so long ago, we've already solved all those, maybe just listen. That's what humility allows us to do. Humility allows us to accept that two things can be true at the same time. For example, it can be true that many people of color and many people from other countries have come to the United States and they have been very successful by the world standard. That can be true while at the same time it still be true that many are suffering under systemic cyclical oppression in our country. Those, those both can be true. It can be true that the overwhelming majority of law enforcement are wonderful women and men full of integrity, committed to protecting our communities, laying their life on the line every single day. That can be 100% true while at the same time there be some in law enforcement who are guided by biases and prejudices that cause them to make wrong decisions. Those both can be true in the world that we live in. See, here's the thing, because most of you look remarkably similar to me. The biases and prejudice among the, those few, they will never affect any of my kids. Like, I don't ever go to sleep wondering what might happen if one of my kids gets pulled over tonight. I don't, I don't ever even think about that. There are some people whose skins are a little bit darker than most of ours. They think about it a lot. They have that conversation with their 16-year-old before they start driving. This is what you need to do. This is where you need to put your hands this is how you need to respond. I have never once had that conversation with any of my white kids. That's a privilege that I get. I don't have to, I don't have, to have that conversation. It's not true for everybody. See, all of these things can be true. It can be true that every country has a right and a responsibility to guard its borders... And have a, a meaningful, helpful way of deciding who gets in and who stays in their country. While at the same time, it, can be all, it also can be true that we cannot lose our humanity while we're protecting our borders. Both of those can be true. 
Humility allows me to say there are some wonderful things about this country that I am proud of and I love and I'm so glad that I was born here while at the same time I can also say we got a lot of work to do on some things. We are not perfect. And there are some deep seated issues that we have got to uncover and get right in this nation. Both of those things can be true. If I'm humble enough to see them. Humility means I don't have to check with my political party to decide where I stand on an issue. That I can look for truth and justice and goodness and where I find it, I can be on that side. Whether it has an R or a D after it. I don't have to check with the 24-hour news channel that I like the most to decide if I'm for this or against this. I can look for truth and justice and goodness, and I can just be on that side. God's command in Micah 6, 8, interestingly, is that we're supposed to act justly. Act justly. Not just think about justice. Not just have this really awkward conversation one time in our church. We're supposed to do something when we see injustice. We're supposed to respond in some way because we're God's people. And maybe for some of us, that means we will speak up when we hear someone using racially insensitive language or making a racial joke or a racial slur. We will stand up among our friends, our co-workers, our family members and say, not in front of me. Maybe that's an act that you and I could do. Maybe we will refuse to post or comment or share something that stereotypes or paints in a negative light a whole group of people. Maybe we just stay out of that, not pass that sort of information along. Maybe we'll realize we can't fix everything in the foster care system, but we could do something. We would love to connect you with a group that can give you information and help you get trained and let you consider whether that's a step that you want to take. Because you could bring justice into the life of one person, even if you can't bring it into the life of 17,000. Maybe you would get with Pam's organization and consider being a mentoring family for one of these 18-year-olds that's aging out of foster care. Just, they just need a connection so that they don't become a part of the system. So they don't cycle back through. They just need one connection in their life. Maybe you could become a court-appointed special advocate. Maybe you would support some of the foster families in our church. Maybe you would give to Connection Homes or, or Four Winds Ministries, Pam's Parish's ministry, Michael Giddens ministry. Both of them have their annual banquets coming up. Be a great time to jump in. That we would act 
justly. Maybe, maybe it means that you will intentionally build a friendship with someone that doesn't look like you. I don't mean you work in the next cubicle. I mean, you build a relationship to get to know somebody and to hear their story and to hear their experience. And again, not try to talk them out of their experience. Empathize with their experience. Maybe you could do that. You could act justly. Maybe we, maybe just us, maybe we would commit today that we will not participate in the growing divide in our country, the growing name-calling and finger-pointing. We will not participate in that. Listen, I don't know if I've said everything the right way. I don't know if I used all the right words. You may go back and listen to this or watch this later and think, oh, he shouldn't have said that or, oh, he should have used a different phrase. Probably. I, I probably said something the wrong way. I'm just at a point now where I feel like whether we say all the right words or not, we have got to have this conversation among the people of God. We, we have to have this conversation. We have to be honest about the good and the harsh realities of the world that we live in because we're called to be salt and light He's shown us, people, what's good and what the Lord requires of us to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Because here's what I believe. I believe Jesus breaks every chain, every one of them. I believe Jesus brings light and hope and freedom into the life of everyone who's oppressed if we just get Jesus to them. I believe Jesus is capable of breaking the chains of deep-seated bias in my own heart that I don't even recognize yet. I don't even see it clearly yet. Jesus is able to break, though Jesus is able to break the chains of division in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our city. He will. If we will be people who act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God, He will use us to break those chains. Let's be those people. God, thank you that from 2,700 years ago, your desires for us are so clear. That in every society, in every culture, in all parts of the world, wealth and power lead to oppression until somebody steps in and breaks the chain. God, I don't know how much you'll use us to to change our whole country. I don't know how much you'll use us to change the whole world. But God, use us to change our city. Use us to change our relationships. Use us to change life for one person at a time. And let it begin with an honest, not a defensive, but an honest look at our own hearts. That you would soften us. That you would humble us. 
that we would be people who act justly and love mercy and walk humbly before you. In Jesus' name, amen.